We are exploring the Old Testament this summer. If you've been around the last couple of weeks, we're exploring God's salvation history uh, as told from Abraham to David and ultimately to Jesus. The last four weeks, we've learned about Abraham, we learned about Isaac, we learned about Jacob, and we learned about Joseph last week. And Greg and Jody and Jason and Andrew, respectively, have all done a great job of teaching us about those characters and about those stories. Those stories round out the book of Genesis. So now that we're going to start looking at Moses, we're moving into the book of Exodus. And Moses has a lot in his story for us to take a look at. Some really significant things that happen, significant things for us to draw, draw lessons out from. So for the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about Moses. I have the task of speaking about his first 40 years, what happens there and what we can take from that. Jason will pick up after that, and then uh, Greg Hook will, will finish this out in a couple weeks. And before we get going, guys, I just want to say that I'm really thankful to be a part of a church that explores the Old Testament and values it and looks into it. Um, and we want to we see where, where we are pointed to Christ in the Old Testament. And, and that, that gives great glory to the Father, and I'm, I'm just thankful to, to be a part of a church that that values, um, values the Old Testament and looks into it. So, we're going to get rolling. Moses. Moses is a big deal. If you have any kind of prior biblical knowledge, you probably know some, some things about Moses. Uh, he's largely credited as the author of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses is generally credited as the author of those books. Um, Moses speaks to God face to face as one speaks to a friend that's in the Exodus account, um, which perhaps is how he wrote the book of Genesis, because obviously he wasn't there for the book of Genesis, um, but perhaps he wrote down the things that God is telling him face to face, and he compiles these five books for us. He's largely credited as the author of these, uh, these Old Testament books. Um, and he has a unique relationship with God. Like I said, he speaks to God face to face, and that's, that's a significant thing. They have a unique relationship. In the New Testament, let's think about some New Testament references of Moses. In Hebrews chapter 11, um, the hall of faith, as it's sometimes called, uh, a list of many, many Bible characters and uh, their stories of bold faith and trust in the Lord. Moses is mentioned many times in that chapter in the New Testament, parts of his story. And one other New Testament mention of Moses that we might be familiar with, in Matthew 17, at the transfiguration, Jesus shows his glory um, to Peter, James, and John, and there are two Old Testament figures that show up, and they're talking with the glorified Jesus, Um, and it's Moses and Elijah. So Moses shows up, like, pretty much everywhere in the book. He's a big deal. Um, so there are, there are many, many things for us to take from Moses' life, and that's what we're going to start to look at this morning. So if you, were here, if you were here last week, Dr. West, Andrew, used this whiteboard and did a bunch of graphs and stuff. And it was awesome, because I'm a high school math teacher, so I, like, I dig that, okay? I dig the graphs. I appreciate it. I like it. Um, I value it, and I, I thank him for doing it. But I am not going to do it, okay? I'm not going to draw graphs because that's what I do like every single day during the school year. Pretty much my whole professional life amounts to 
forcing people to look at graphs. And I'm not, I'm not going to do it. So I've, I've, I, really, I really like that from Andrew last week, um, but I'm not going to use that tool. We're going to use three questions to guide us uh, through the morning, three questions that we want to try to answer in Moses' first 40 years. What's happening to God's chosen family at this point in our story? Uh, who's Moses? And where's Jesus in all this? All right, so those are the three questions that we're going to be taking a look at. So, uh, question one, what's happening to God's chosen family? I'm going to read through some portions out of Exodus 1 and 2. If you have a Bible, you can jump there with me. Uh, we're going to go through some verses here. So, we know about God's chosen family from the book of Genesis, right? It starts with Abraham. Um, God promises Abraham that he is going to use his family to be a blessing to all the nations and um, Abraham's descendants are going to be greater than the sand on the seashore, and this family is chosen as, as God's chosen family. So what's happening to them? Well, if you remember, uh, at the end of Genesis, they are in Egypt. And at the end of Genesis, the culmination of Joseph's story, they're living lavishly in Egypt. They're living the good life in Egypt. And where we pick up in Exodus, uh, things change in a pretty significant way. So I'm going to start reading out of Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 6. It said, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. So Joseph, all of Jacob's son, they come into Egypt. Eventually they all die. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, and they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So the family started as God's chosen family, has now become a chosen nation. There's many, many, many Israelites, and they're filling the land of the Egyptians. And then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. So a new pharaoh takes over. And if you remember from Andrew's uh, discussion of Joseph last week, Joseph had kind of become like the head honcho in Egypt. He was a big deal. Um, he saved the land from famine, and a new pharaoh comes into power, and he doesn't, he doesn't care about Joseph. He doesn't care what you did. doesn't care who he was. That's in the past now. We gotta, there's a new reign. And things are going to change. Um, there is a, there's some, much to read about regarding how much time passes in between the death of Joseph and this part of the story. Birth of Moses and the reign of this new Pharaoh. Much to read about. I got my head spinning off on that in my preparation. So you go look at that if, if you want to later. But... Um, what we need to know is that the Israelites are numerous. They're not just a family anymore. They are a, they're a people group at this point. And there is a new pharaoh that comes into town, and he doesn't care who Joseph is. And this is what he says um, in verse 9. He says, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So now there's some animosity growing. There's some suspicion and some fear developing between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Verse 11, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses. I don't know if that's how you say those, but those are store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. 
So things have certainly changed. Things have certainly changed for the Israelites, for the Hebrew people, for God's chosen family. Things are different. They were living the lavish life in Egypt because Joseph was the man. But now we don't care about Joseph anymore in Egypt. And now the Israelites have become enslaved and oppressed, um, and things are not looking good for them. Let me show you this quote from uh, Charles Swindoll. I think this sums up pretty well the situation that the Israelites are facing. The native population, the Egyptians, began to look upon Israel with narrowed eyes, growing suspicion. And as we know all too well from our world's bloody history, mounting suspicion towards a people group is only a step away from prejudice, yet another step away from persecution and but a stone's throw from genocide. So God's people are hated. They're hated in Egypt. In verse 12, it says that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Hebrew word for dread is kutz, and it means to have an abhorrence for and a sickening feeling. So when the Egyptians look at the Israelites, they're sick to their stomach. They hate them. They abhor them. They dread them. It's a deep-seated animosity that the Egyptians have towards the Israelites. And, of course, we know this, would, this is not going to be the last time that the Jews would suffer. Certainly not the last time in, in the biblical story, and obviously not the last time in modern history. Um, this is going to be a recurring thing, God's people suffering. So, in my preparation, I was kind of wondering why. Like, how does this come about? Why do the Egyptians come to loathe the Israelites? And there's... Numerous reasons that you can look to, scholars talk about, that might have brought about this change of heart. Um, One of them is if you think about the ancient Egyptian culture, they are highly academic, highly sophisticated, intelligent, educated, an elitist type people group, type society, okay? Um, And the Israelites, the Hebrews at this point, are not that, Um, There's actually a a really interesting part in uh, Genesis 46 when Jacob and his sons are coming into Egypt. Joseph has made a way for them to escape famine. They're coming into Egypt, and Joseph tells his brother, he, he tells his brothers, he's like, hey, guys, when you go before Pharaoh, whatever you do, don't tell him that you are shepherds because the Israelites, or sorry, the Egyptians despise shepherds. That's what the text says. They think they're barbaric, right? The the Egyptians are up here, right? Academic, sophisticated, learned. The Israelites are down here, shepherds. And there's a a tension here. So over time, again, the, the Egyptians come to loathe, hate the Israelites, and they enslave them and oppress them. So at the end of uh, Exodus chapter 1 and verse 22, it says, Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. Let every girl live. So now Pharaoh is implementing infanticide to change the population um, and systematically destroy the Israelites. So what's happening to God's chosen people? That's the question. Well, they've become a family or sorry, they've, they've, become a na- they've become a nation. But at this point in the story, they're oppressed, they're enslaved, and they're near to being systematically erased. And they need, they need rescue. They're in a dire situation. And they need rescue. So times have sure, certainly changed 
for God's chosen family. Next question of the, of the morning, who's Moses? So I'm going to jump to uh, chapter 2 now of Exodus, if you're reading along with me. And I also want to point out to you that there's a parallel passage in the New Testament that gives a little more insight into Moses' story, and it's in Acts chapter 7. So if you know the context, this is uh, Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7, if you know that story. Um, Stephen gives a synopsis of some Old Testament characters, Moses being one of them, and then he's stoned for it, so he must have said something pretty crazy. You should go, go read it. Um, but he talks about Moses a little bit and gives us some things that we can draw out that are not in the Exodus narrative. There are also some things that we can draw out of, of Moses' life uh, from the first century Jewish historian Josephus. And that's all I know about Josephus. That he's a first century Jewish historian. So don't ask me anything else about Josephus because I can't tell you. But we, we can pull some things um, from, his, from her, some historical accounts that we can, we can use to build a picture of Moses' life. Okay? So I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 in Exodus 2. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And this son is Moses. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Because remember, he's supposed to get thrown into the Nile. He's a baby boy. He's supposed to get into the water. But Moses' mother, her name is Jochebed, she sees that he's a fine child. There's something about him that's unique, something about him that's special. So she decides, I'm going to try to save this boy. Okay, so she hides him. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch, then placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Um, His sister's name is Miriam, Moses' older sister. So let's see what happens. Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. So Pharaoh's daughter certainly knows that this baby is supposed to be killed. But it appears that she has compassion on this child. So Miriam is waiting in the wings just to see what happens. And in verse 7, she jumps into action. It says, Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? So Miriam, Moses' sister, is waiting, right? So Pharaoh's daughter takes up Moses, is looking at him, and there's a sense of compassion for this baby. So Miriam jumps into action, is like, hey, can I go get one of the Hebrew women and we can take care of this baby for you? And then what happens next is pretty, pretty amazing. She says, yes, go. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. She goes and gets Moses' mom. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I'll pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Um, so a couple things just to point out here in Moses's, the story of Moses' birth. I think we need to, we need to give attention to the courage, the faith, and the boldness that Moses' mother displays in this story. Because this is an absurd plan. It's a ridiculous plan. 
She's like, I'm going to try to save my, my boy from the infanticide happening in Egypt. I'm going to put him in a basket, and I'm going to put him in the river. It's crazy. It's crazy. Um, usually we think of her like floating him down the water and just watching him go, and you know, we don't know what's going to happen. But what's interesting is that the text, the text reads that she placed the child among the reeds, along the banks, like she goes and sets him down along the banks in the reeds. So perhaps she knows where, where Pharaoh's daughter comes to bathe. Maybe she knows that he's going to be found. Perhaps. This is just speculation, obviously. But all that to say, there is a boldness and a faith that God is going to do something to protect this child. Because again, Jochebed thinks that he's special. There's something about him that's unique. So I think we need to, we need to acknowledge her faith in this story. So while all the rest of the Hebrew babies are being thrown into the river, Moses gets taken into Egyptian royalty. Different experience for him. And like it says, Moses' mom, who got to get paid to nurse her own child, right? It's pretty phenomenal how God rewards her faith. Um, We don't know how long Moses was with his mom and with his family. Some scholars say that it was past the point of weaning, so maybe like three or four years. Um, What we do know is that somewhere along the line, Moses gets a sense of who he is. He gets a sense of where he comes from, gets a sense of who his people are. Like he knows that he's a Hebrew. And perhaps this could have been being raised up by his mom for a short time when he was young. Somewhere along the line, Moses learns of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he knows where he comes from. Okay. At this point, um, we're in verse 10. In between verses 10 and 11, there's a little bit of a gap, okay? Because right now, Moses is just a child. In verse 11, fast forward, now he's 40 years old in verse 11, in the next story we're going to learn about. So stuff happens, obviously, in between his boyhood and being a grown man at 40 years old. So what was going on during that time? Well, this is where we can pull from uh, Stephen's speech in Acts as well as some historical accounts. So in, uh, in Acts, in Acts 7.22, Stephen tells us that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. So he gets taken up out of the river, he gets, put, he's, he gets, thrown, he gets schooled up by the Israelites, because remember, they're an academic, sophisticated uh, society and culture, and Moses is fully entrenched in this from a young age, schooled in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Uh, from Josephus, we know that Moses was most likely being groomed to take the seat of the Pharaoh. So not only is he just an Egyptian boy that's being schooled up, like, he's going to be the man. He's in line to take the seat. He's big stuff. We also know that he was a a strong warrior leading the Egyptian armies in battle. So Moses is a big deal growing up. He's a big deal. They say that uh, wherever Moses traveled around in Egypt, he was going in in a chariot, right? So he's going in a chariot. There's guards all around him. And if he enters near where you are, those guards are going to look at you and scream at you to bow the knee, bow the knee to Moses. This is what his life is. If he's going down the Nile River, he's floating in this big boat. There's music playing, right? It's, a, it, it's illustrious. And this is Moses' life. 
from boyhood until he's 40 years old. This is what he grows up in, fully entrenched in the Israelite culture, or, uh, the Egyptian culture and society. But somehow, whether it was through his mom or through some other source, Moses knows where he came from. He knows that he is a Hebrew, as we'll see in this story. He knows his roots, even though he is um, completely enveloped in the Egyptian way of life. So let's look at, uh, let's start in verse 11, the next story in the account. Again, he's 40 years old at this point. Remember, he's been, he's grown up in royalty. He's going to be the next pharaoh. But somehow he knows he's an Israelite, so this is what happens. In verse 11, it says, One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and washed up at their hard labor. So he knows. He knows his own people are suffering. So he goes out to see them. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. So, what the heck is Moses doing? Like, why, what, what's he trying to do? Why is he going out to see his people? And why does he kill this Egyptian? Well, again, Stephen in Acts 7 can help us here. Uh, maybe get a greater sense of what Moses was thinking. Acts 7.25, we're told that Moses thought his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue him. But they did not. And we'll learn more about this in a little bit. But it appears that at this point, Moses has a sense that he is going to rescue and deliver the Israelite people from their suffering. Even now in the story. And of course, we know that he will do that eventually. We know that God is one day going to use Moses to bring the Israelites out of Egypt and out of their suffering. But it would appear that at this point in the story, Moses already has, has a sense that he's going to do that. He wants to do that. And that's why he goes out to his people. But now think about this. What does he do in his first attempt? His first move as trying to be God's deliverer, what does he do? He kills a guy immediately, becomes a murderer. In the, in, with the intention of being God's rescuer, he becomes a murderer. He fails miserably, miserably, steps in it big time. His heart to rescue God's people is admirable, right? He wants to be God's deliverer. But his means are not. His first, act, his first attempt, he becomes a murderer. And I think we, should, we would do well to just sit in that for a minute. The Bible doesn't avoid the dark nature of human beings and their stories. And perhaps you've had this thought as we've been going through the Old Testament. Sometimes the Old Testament is challenging. Sometimes it's confusing. Because things happen in it, like, you know, bloody murder, that we're just like, what do we do with this? How am I supposed to feel about this? What am I supposed to think about this? And sometimes it's confusing. I think after a little bit of critical thought, the brutality of the Old Testament, some of the confusing things that happen in the Old Testament, might actually be able to affirm more so its validity. And let me, let me tell you what I mean. Who wrote, who wrote this? 
Moses. Moses is right in the book, okay? It's either true or it's not. So just assume with me for a second that it's not true. Like, this is not, this didn't happen. It's all farce, and we can't trust it. Just assume that that's the case. If Moses is writing this book about himself, and he's trying to write it, and he knows it's not true, it's not, it didn't actually happen, and he's just trying to get people to believe it, why would he write himself in as a murderer? In his first step, like, who wants to follow a murderer? Who wants to believe a murderer? Who wants to trust a murderer? This is too honest. The Bible is too honest to be fabricated. It's too honest. It must mean that this is just what happened. It's the authentic truth. And God would use broken, failure Moses to accomplish his purposes. So it's a little bit of a tangent for us outside of the story, um, but I think it's important for us to see that, sit in it, um, and explore the ways that God is glorified, even in the confusing parts of the Old Testament. So let's go back to the story. Moses just completely failed in his first attempt to be the Israelites' deliverer. So we'll pick up in verse 13 of Exodus 2. He's not done. He's going to go try again. Okay, so the next day, after he just killed this guy, the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. So he's found out. He's found out. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. We're going to stop the the history lesson there. So let's think about this story. He's not done. He still thinks he's going to be the guy, right? He still thinks he's going to be the deliverer to go bring the people out of their suffering. So he goes back out. There's these two Hebrews fighting, um, and he comes up to him, and he's like, guys, what are you doing? Come on. Like, you're better than this. We're better than this. You know, like, we can, let's figure it out. And what do these guys say to him? Who made you ruler and judge over us? And I think you can just kind of see maybe the countenance that they had, like, who are you? Who do you think you are? Who made you my ruler? Because these guys know who Moses was. They're probably thinking, you're the guy that rides around in the chariot. Like, you're the guy that they play all the music for. You're the guy that I have to bow my knee to. Like, my babies are getting killed under your rule. Who are you? Who do you think you are telling me what to do? So they reject him. They don't want him. They don't want him as a ruler. They don't want him as a judge. They don't want him as a rescuer. So I told you I'm a a teacher. I'm a teacher at Rocky. And school has been a a strange exercise the last uh, couple of years. Uh, We've been out of school. We've been in school. We've been out of school and in school at the same time somehow. And last August, we went back to school, like, to do it for, for real for the first time in a while. And we had some learning to do because we had kind of forgotten how to interact with each other a little bit, like students to students and students to staff and 
even staff to staff in some instances, and we just had to figure out how to like, be with each other again, much like many other people. So the hallways, if you're, if you're a teacher, you're in schools at all, um, you, you, you're gonna relate to this. The hallways are kind of a battleground because kids right now love to do this thing where they'll just like peace out a class and go cruise the hallways for like 45 minutes. And then when they get back, they'll be like, oh yeah, I was in the bathroom. Um, and this, they just like to do this. It's, it's weird, but they like to do it. So I'm walking around in the halls one day and teachers are kind of putting in this effort to get kids back to class and kind of clean up the halls a little bit. And I see this group of like five or six kids and they're kind of like in the doorway to the bathroom and kind of outside of it and they're kind of chilling there and a little bit more context for you for what's going on. Um, the bathrooms in the school is sometimes referred to as the jewel room rather than the bathroom. If you know what I'm talking about, that's kids go into the bathroom to like get out their jewel or their vape pen or whatever. And they're going to go into the bathroom and sit in there and make a big cloud. Uh, and this is what they do. And kids tell me that sometimes they'll walk into the bathroom, the bathroom, like, you know, I'm talking about a bathroom, right? Like a public restroom. They'll walk into the bathroom and there will be like five or six kids sitting on the floor in the bathroom, just like chilling in there. It's like they've annexed the bathroom. And kids will like walk in to use the bathroom and these other kids are like, what are you doing in here? This is like, we're, still, we're chilling in here right now, man. Like, yeah, you can't be in here right now. And it's fascinating. I just don't get it. I don't understand. Like, why the bathroom? I don't get it. I feel like if I walked in, and they're chilling in there, and they're like, what are you doing in here? You know, like, we're chilling in here right now. What, what do you think you're doing in here? Well, I know what I'm doing. I know exactly why I came in here. Do you know why I came in here? It's the bathroom. Like, I'm in the bathroom. Do you want to stay for what I'm about to do in the bathroom? <laughs> I, just, I don't get it. I don't understand, but they think it's, like, so cool <laughs> out in the bathroom. And I just, I don't understand it. But anyways... So I walk up to these kids, and I'm like, hey, guys, you know, what are we doing? We're going to class. And they're like, oh, yeah, 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 we're, you know, we'll, we'll go to class. And they walk away like this, you know, like two miles an hour. Um, so fast forward 10 minutes. I've, I've gone to the front office. I've done whatever I was doing. And I'm coming back to my classroom in a different part of the building. And I see a couple of those kids like messing around with a cork board or something like that in the hallway. Um, so, you know, I like look down the hall and I see them and I'm like, oh, I guess we're doing this. So I walk down towards them and like one of them sees me and kind of runs off into a hall and one of them sees me and just like, you know, jumps into a classroom or something like that. But there's this one kid, okay? There's this one kid who's, you know, he's like messing with the cork board. He looks at me. We're making eye contact, and he just goes back to the cork board, okay? It was like he, in that moment, he was like, what are, we done? what are we doing? Come on, let's do it, bring it. So I'm like, okay, so I'm walking down the hall, and I'm, you know, I'm gonna try not to be antagonistic. I don't wanna make this kid blow up on me or anything like that. So I walk up to him, and I think I said something to the effect of, hey man, like, how many, uh, how many laps have you done around the building since we last spoke a couple minutes ago? And 
he looked at me and he gave me one of these. You know what I'm talking about? Like he gave me the up down. He gives me the up down and he's like, who even are you? That's what he says. He's like, who even are you, man? And I'm like, I don't know who I'm going to be right now because I got to make a choice. Like I'm I'm either going to be somebody or somebody else. But anyways, I don't, I don't know exactly what I said. <laughs> I don't remember exactly what I said to him. But um, the reason I tell you that story is because I think that that might have been a similar response that the Hebrews had to Moses in this moment. Like, who do you think you are talking to me? Who do you think you are? And they reject him. They don't want him. And why? Why did they reject him? Why did this kid respond to me like this? Because Moses had no way of identifying with his people at this moment. He's royalty, and his people are suffering. They have no way of leveling with each other. And in the same way, you know, this is obviously, I think we should still expect students to respect authority, but I'm in authority over this kid, right? We can't identify necessarily. And that's why he, that's why he, he doesn't care what I have to say. I can't identify him, so he cares not what I have to say. And the Israelites felt the same. So that was our second question. Who's Moses? We're going to end the history lesson here. Jason's going to pick up uh, here next week, but I want to end our time uh, with this question. Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus in all this? Is he here? And if so, what's like, how? Where? Because one of the goals of this sermon series, Tracing God's Salvation History Through the Old Testament, one of the goals of this series is that we would discover the moments in these stories that point us to the ultimate culmination of salvation in Christ. And there are many of them. There are many, many, many moments where we can say, man, that's like, I think that is talking about Jesus. I think that points me to Jesus. Um, so we're going we're gonna to explore some of these right now. Let me just recap Moses' story for you. All right? Everything we just talked about, very briefly, recap Moses' story. He's an Israelite boy, Jewish boy. He's born under an oppressive king, an oppressive king that wants him dead, all right? an order to kill all uh, baby Israelite boys. He's rescued from murder, at his birth, by the belief and the faith of his mother. At a young age, he's wise and learned, right? Schooled up, educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He's wise and he's learned. He's admired by others. Remember, Stephen said that he's powerful in speech and action. And then when he comes of age, when Moses comes of age, he shows himself to his own people as their perceived rescuer. And what do his people do? They reject him. They don't want him. They don't want him. They don't want them. They don't want him as their ruler. They don't want him as their rescuer. And I ask you, this is the question now, okay? Does that sound familiar to you? Does anything in that story sound familiar? Because I know another story about a baby Israelite boy born under an oppressive king that wants him dead. I'm going to throw some references up here. You don't have to go look at them all because they're kind of long, but maybe write them down and afterwards you can go check it out because it's fascinating. It's fascinating. 
Jesus is born under Herod's order to kill all the boys born in Bethlehem. But his parents escape by fleeing to, oh my gosh, Egypt. What? Crazy. It's Matthew 2, 13 through 18. What about after his birth? Moses, schooled up in the ways of the Egyptian, right? Smart, impressive young man. What about this story in Luke chapter 2? It's a fun story to read. When Jesus is 12 years old, he's found in the temple courts in Jerusalem having a discussion with the religious leaders. And this is what the text said. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. They're talking about 12-year-old Jesus. He's discussing matters of the law and holiness and the nature of God with the religious leaders in the temple. And everybody's amazed. Perhaps just like Moses is an impressive young man. Or what about when Moses presents himself as rescuer? Moses shows himself as rescuer to the Israelites from oppression and slavery. Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, this is, might be my favorite story of Jesus. Um, he, he walks into this, the introduction of his earthly ministry in Luke chapter 4. It's such, a, it's such a cool story. He walks into the synagogue. He asks for the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. They give it to him. He unrolls it. And he reads this prophecy about somebody that will come to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, to set the oppressed free. Rolls up the scroll, gives it back, and he looks at everybody and says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Because it's about me. It's about Jesus. Like, that is about me. It's cool. I'm getting goosebumps. Just like, it's a fun story. Jesus is so magnificent and cool in that story. Moses tried to be Israel's rescuer from slavery and oppression. And what do they do? They say no. They reject him. Jesus comes to set the oppressed free. By this he means, free, he means freedom from sin and death. And what did his people do? Put him on the cross. The ultimate extent of rejection and suffering. They don't want him as their king. And they put him on the cross. And this isn't a coincidence, guys. This is, this is not a coincidence. And there are many, many more parallels that we can draw from Moses to Jesus and from other characters in the Old Testament to Jesus, from other stories in the Old Testament. And why is that? It's the, this is the glory of God displayed through his word. It's the true nature of salvation displayed even from the first book of the Bible, the first and second books of the Bible. We already see the shadow of Jesus laid across the entire biblical narrative. Every part of the book, every part, every single section of this book beckons us to Christ as the ultimate Savior, the ultimate rescuer. And it's, it's my hope and my prayer that this would get us like stirred up, affirmed, and confident in Jesus as Lord. I mean, my preparation for this, I'm, I would just sit back and say, man... This is, this is amazing. This is astonishing. And it's, it glorifies the Lord. It honors the name of Jesus. So we're going to end 
We're going to end by focusing on um, just one of these parallels between Moses and Jesus, okay? So we're going to think again about when these two Israelite guys reject Moses. He tries to be their rescuer, they reject him. And we've already, spoke about, we've already spoken about this a little bit. Why did these guys reject him? Why did they not want him? Because he couldn't relate to them, right? Could not relate to them. They can't see each other because he's royalty, they're not. Um, he can't identify with the Israelites and their suffering. So I don't have, a, I don't have this uh, quote on a slide, but I'm just going to read it to you. This is from a commentary that I read. Just like Jesus, Moses could not deliver, couldn't deliver his people. Moses could not deliver when he lived in the palaces of glory. When he's royalty, he cannot rescue his people because they can't identify. He had to come down off the throne away from the palace and into a humble place before he could deliver his people, which, of course, he will. And God is going to bring this about, and we'll hear about that in the next couple weeks. God will use Moses to do this, but not while he is sitting in the palaces of glory. He has to become like his people in order to be their rescuer. And in the same way, Jesus left the throne of the Father and became a man, became like us to be our rescuer. So in this, Moses is the imperfect rescuer for the Israelites. But the wonderful news for us is that you and I, in Jesus, know the perfect rescuer that Moses was not. He got off the throne. He can identify with us. Hebrews 4 says we have a high priest that can empathize with us in all of our suffering and temptation because Jesus was a man. He walked. He lived like us, lived the life that we could not. And in doing so, he is our perfect rescuer, deliverer from sin and death. I'm going to point you to one more uh, reference in the New Testament. It might be familiar to some of us, Philippians 2. 5 through 11, I'm just, I'm just going to read it for us, okay? In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He is God, and he comes into the form of a man, just like Moses was going to have to come into the form of the Israelites and away from the palaces, I had this thought in the, first, in the first service that the palaces of glory that Jesus enjoyed with the Father would melt the palaces of glory that Moses enjoyed with the Egyptians. And yet Jesus sets it aside to be found as a man. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus got off the throne and he's our perfect rescuer. And that's good news for us this morning. Worship band, you guys can come back up. Like I said, guys, it's my hope and my prayer that um, we get stirred up in our confidence and our love and our faith and our trust in Jesus as Savior this morning. He is 
the perfect rescuer for our souls. And there's one name. It's not the name of Moses. It's nobody's name. No, nothing else by which we must be saved. It's only the name of Jesus Christ. I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mysteries shown to us in your word. We thank you that it is trustworthy. We thank you that you got off the throne, Jesus, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us to know our suffering and to be without sin so that somehow through your death and resurrection, Lord, we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We praise you this morning. Amen.